This podcast is part of the Bad Wolf Network. Visit badwolf.com for information on all other shows. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Running Down Corridors. I'm Martin and joining me this week I've Chris. Hello. And Sam. Hello there. And on this episode we are here to talk about survival. I think I'll come to Sam first. When did you first experience survival? Uh, I think I got it on video when I was uh, younger, probably about 8 or 9 years old. Um, re- re- still love it. Still really like it. I watched it the other day because I was finishing off my season twenty six box set, and I sat and watched it. And yeah, I still think it it, it stands up. It, it, it's nice. I mean, I think I mentioned this actually at um, one of the We Are Cult events that once when I was watching it a couple of years back, I was very surprised to see my wife, my girlfriend at the time, came in and started watching it with me. And I thought, what's going on? She's not a fan of this show. Certainly not the classic series. She thinks it's awful. There she was. She sat down. After about two minutes, she went, oh, I thought you were watching This Is England. Because, of, <laughs> because of, you know, when they all sat around the fire, it's very 80s and it's very of the time yeah, of yeah. 1989. And I like that. Yeah, I, I really like it. Now, I remember it really kind of made, it feels different. As, as that season does, it feels very different. And it was going in a new, more mature direction, which I think was good. And what, I think we were all fascinated to have seen what was going to come next. But, you know, it's the first time they sort of look at what happens when somebody leaves with him and what's left behind. You know, he, he mentions things about her mum looking for her mum, registered her as a missing person, the life she's left behind, and they all just assume, was it they say they assume she went to Birmingham? Or something. Or died, yeah. Yeah, I heard she died or went to Birmingham, which is a great line. So yeah, it's, it's fair. And I think that episode actually influences the new series a lot, especially um, the kind of Billy Piper and, you know, you've got like the flats, the the area of London, the mention of parents, the mention of what happens when you go missing, which we see in uh, the uh, Aliens of London episode. Um, yeah, I think that's that's why I like it is that it feels like a window into a whole new 90s series that we never saw. How about you, Chris? I think I saw it in a similar way to, to Sam. I remember, I, th- I can't remember if I owned the video or if I got it out of the library, but I remember watching it and finding myself most disturbed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I was talking to someone about it a few years ago, some years ago, and they said it was so easy for this, uh, for that episode to come across as a fan film in the, in the setting because it was, it was like one on the f- rare occasions it was set in a suburban street <laughs> in Perivale and uh, I, I remember once going to a friend's birthday thing and they said uh, they and they met in Perivale and naturally they wanted to do a walking tour of the place and I was like I can't remember anything I <laughs> I, I, I just stopped sort of around going yeah probably it, you know it could be uh, <laughs> look at looking at little air street corners again yeah sure yeah uh, yeah oh yeah yeah it does look like it doesn't it <laughs> Oh, is that the park, is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> Quite liked it. I thought uh, seeing the master back was great. The ending was good. I, I don't know. I've, I've really... I'm. I'm being different to it. I think out of all of them to end on, it's quite a good fitting title, given that it does come eventually survive. But I think I, when I first watched it, I was a bit underwhelmed. But now in the grand scheme of thing, I quite appreciate it for what it was. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I remember when I was younger watching it, I don't think I rewatched it 
again for a long time. I think I kind of, it's one of those episodes that I would watch very anxiously. Like I kind of just wanted to watch it to make sure that the characters were okay till the end. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But I didn't want to watch it. And it wasn't a fun experience to watch. It wasn't like watching them in Remembrance of the Daleks, like shooting Daleks in the face or running away. It felt very adult. I remember watching it and thinking, this feels a little bit too old for me. And I'm watching it the other day, actually, even as a 31-year-old, I still felt there were some scenes where I sort of went, oh, that's a bit like, like when they show the dead cat. At, yeah, at the back yeah, of the yeah. shop. And that whole scene in the shop is creepy as hell. If you actually listen to them, the way they're talking to each other, it's almost like a David Lynch film. It's <laughs> so odd. Like, it's Hail and Pace. You instantly go, yeah, Hail and Pace. Yeah, yeah. If you listen to what they're talking about, it's so, they're talking about, you know, opening on Sundays and how there's not, like, that, it, the economy's suffering. And then they go into this weird, they go from this sort of chat about opening a shop and not having any money and not any customers to then this weird kind of riddle about a man leaving his friend to get eaten by a lion. And then there's a jump yeah. There's a jump scare because a cat comes out, which I remember made me sh- shit myself when I was younger. But that whole scene, <laughs> I, w- I went back and watched it again, like after I'd watched it and went, God, that's a creepy scene. That's like something from, I feel like that's very big finish, that scene. It's something where you get a couple of actors in just to do a little bit of dialogue back and forward. And it's just creepy. And there's the no- the, the music in the shop in the background's creepy as well it's which is great now i you know i think it's great but i still sort of think god were children watching this because i wouldn't have liked it yeah no i agree it took me a long time to watch this i don't think i watched it till like 2012 i saw it on dvd obviously i didn't grow up with doctor who it was cancelled when i was like six or seven it just wasn't in my orbit at all until 2005 but i kind of had this misconception that because it was cancelled under sylvester mccoy that meant that his entire era was terrible Oh, right. I didn't sit down to watch this for ages. And I remember the first time I tried, I got to Hale and Pace in the shop and I turned it off. Then watched it again. It's a very good story. I enjoy it. I remember Hale and Pace being like the kings of Saturday night TV on ITV. Mm. And whenever I watch this, I get really nostalgic for the 80s because this is when I was a child. I remember parks looking like that. I remember shops looking like Mm. that. I love that Anthony Ailey is back as the master. What do you guys make of him in this? Probably one of his better performances outside of the Destiny of the Doctors game. <laughs> Slow coach. I'd agree with that. I think this is the only one of the only times he is genuinely a little bit men like too menacing. He was always to me this kind of especially the Anthony Ainley bless him, he was always very much a pantomime villain, which is fine. You know, it worked for, you know, John Nathan Turner was obsessed with pantomimes. He liked that kind of theatre. So therefore, he deliberately wanted Anthony Ainley to kind of be in this Tudor outfit and, you know, with the long things. He's very much a sort of, oh, 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 my dear doctor and all that. And there's none of that here. He's uh, He's got a sharp attire on. That attire is fantastic. Now, that suit he's got on, the high button suit and his him being possessed. It's very creepy. I mean, it's fantastic. It's probably one of my favorite master performances of all time because of how he's just not it's almost like the doctor's expecting him to have some sort of weird plan and be a little bit over the top he's not he's very creepy there's that great scene when he goes are you scared and the doctor goes no and he goes oh you should be because i can't control yeah. this i can't do it and he's like i'm completely gone and then that excellent scene where he's in the mirror and then he turns to look at the camera and his eyes are yellow and that's, yeah, and, yeah. And, and he's suffering. It's the first time you see that doctor, uh, that master, properly worrying about himself. He was yeah. always a bit annoyed that he'd accidentally shot himself in the face or something. It was a little bit like no, as he fell down a well or whatever. But this is the <laughs> first time where he's kind of like, 
I must keep control. I must, and that's really creepy. So weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You touched on the sound, but I love that it kind of touches upon what happens when a companion leaves. Because a lot of classic who doesn't never like touches on where their families no. think they are and stuff like that. And I know this is something that divides Doctor Who fans to this day. Mm. Is people hate that they worry about families and stuff when they never did it. I like that. I like that bit of realism you know in the 80s if somebody moved you just never heard from them again that mm. might sound really <laughs> yeah. weird to kids listening now that if your friend moves away you just never hear from them but i think when i was like eight or nine these twin brothers that i was friends with they moved to the isle of white i haven't heard from them since 1986 because that <laughs> that was just the reality of the world if somebody moved away that was it thinking that ace is dead or in birmingham that <laughs> <laughs> would have been the rationality at the time. It's been, such well, a good line. I heard she went to Birmingham. I kind of like that. I love the cheetah people. I know they're kind of let down by the costumes, etc. BBC budget in the 80s can't really help that. I love the premise of this. I love to introduce Lisa Bauman to Doctor Who, and she's done amazing stuff with Big Finish as an actress and yep. a director. I think she's a phenomenal director of audio dramas. Mm-hmm. The Farris Project, they got a fascinating interview with Will Barton, who played Midge. Okay. It's about 10 years old now. I'll link it in the description for this. But he's kind of got a really good sense of humor about it. And he's a really funny guy. And I think this was one of his first acting roles. Yeah. Because he is a little bit wooden in the drama. And I think even in the interview, he kind of admits to it. Yeah, he's an interesting one, that man. It's a good idea, isn't it? I mean, the, the character is great. It is a little bit let down with the acting. The sad thing about Midge is it feels like it's going somewhere. Because it was a very young writer. I've forgotten her name. Is it Roma? Rona Monroe. Rona Monroe. So... She and obviously she's the only old series, uh, classic series writer to come and done a new series episode yeah. as well. And she was really young, I think, when she wrote this. And you can tell there's a little bit of sh- shoddiness to it. So it's a bit like the, I suppose you'd call it the final act. That gets a little bit lost. You know, when they go back to Earth, you think, oh god, some stuff's really going to kick off now, and it sort of results in a weird kind of montage of they go to a motorbike shop and he steals a motorbike because he wants it and then they go to the gym where they were training and he does this really weird speech that just you can tell almost like she'd she'd almost left it blank and then when she handed the script and they went oh you got a blank bit here and she quickly writes something in because it's a weird speech he says something like i learned a valuable lesson today do you know what i mean well do you and they're all a bit like i don't know are we supposed to be acting to this like that it, it doesn't he doesn't say anything he doesn't say anything he just walks in and goes i learned a valuable lesson today the lesson of life the lesson of survival do you get what i mean and i just thought they should all go no well at all and you glasses look why are you wearing shades inside and then the master walks in and i i suppose he hypnotizes them or something i guess so he's always been a bit hypnotic so then he's they all start following him. And then there's that bike crash. That's <laughs> just, that's the only bit of the story I really don't like is that bloody bike crash that makes no sense. So Midge is on a bike. And then for some reason, there's a motorbike near the doctor. So he gets on and they ride into each other. There's a massive explosion, <laughs> which kills Midge somehow. Like he doesn't fall, his body should blow. The, the state of that explosion, they should both be in bits. But Midge just sort of falls <laughs> on the floor, has a bit of soot on his mouth. And then the master sort of, for no reason, commands him to die. He goes, well, Midge, that wasn't very good, was it? You know, you sort of feel like they'd had this sort of connection thing, almost like the master had a companion. They just goes, that, that was rubbish, kill yourself. And he just goes, 
uh, and he's dead. And then he finds the do- <laughs> he finds the doctor with his ass hanging out of a sofa, <laughs> and he doesn't do anything. He just looks at him and goes <laughs> and runs away. It's insane. Yeah, I would have at least checked he was dead. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder if the novelization fixes any of this. I hope so because I don't think he does think he's dead. I swear, when he finds him, he's sort of murmuring. He's sort of going, Ugh, and he just laughs at him and runs away. You know, it just goes, ha, 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 that's that then. And then tries to get in the TARDIS. And there's that great scene between those two where they're like, they have that fight, which is great. But that whole last bit with Midge, it just sort of makes no sense to the point where what I love is they sort of get out of it by having another cheater person turn up. And then the cheater person does something. And then every, all like the damage and all the bad stuff in the park just disappears with them. Like the bike goes, the debris goes, and the dead bodies all go. <laughs> like it's so weird. They needed a bike in the cat dimension. Um, could it be? Yeah, they get there, go, oh, lads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they needed a bike. Yeah, so that's the only thing that lets me down, really, is the ending. The um, Well, not the actual ending with the speech. That's great. But the whole just whatever happens near the end is just odd. That whole sort of confrontation bit. I, I, I feel like one, one or two more rewrites of that, it could have been a really nice ending that tied everything up. You know, maybe Midge could have turned back to human or something, or or maybe he went to the cheetah planet, realised that... Because what you feel, in a way, is that Ace feels like she belonged on that cheetah planet, but she doesn't go. So I preferred it to have been that Midge went back, and Midge had actually been aggressive his whole life. Because you get that idea that he's aggressive, he's not very nice. And maybe he actually found his home on that planet, and so he could have gone back. I think that, uh, that and maybe taken the master with him. I think that would have been a, a sort of a better ending. But I was a baby in 1989, and I couldn't suggest it. So <laughs> so let's talk performances. What do you make of McCoy in this? Well, he's just McCoy, isn't he? I think he's like the peak McCoy. He's very good in this. Yeah. The one thing I don't like about McCoy is he's, I don't like the darker side too much. I like the sort of balance in his second year where there was a bit of mischief. The thing that annoyed me the most watching him growing up was that he always seemed to have this plan or already has already thought out everything towards the end. And it was just felt like you were just watching his game. It's almost like you get pissed off. <laughs> just sort of uh, following whatever they're doing. It's like he knew everything from the start and I just didn't feel that, I don't know. So I preferred him when he was a bit more comical, but not stupidly Time of the Rani comical. I'm talk, you know, like the balance <laughs> of the two. He's a good performance, don't get me wrong. I think he's a great performance. I do, I do, it's not my preferred version of him i quite like brown jacket mccoy i think the brown jacket works better yeah i I do um but i kind of didn't like the whole i'm the mastermind behind all of this cleverness i feel like unless you were in his head you wouldn't get a joke that sort of thing i like him in this though i mean i know he's a bit darker but there is this kind of um she's seeing it as we've just got home and i'm just going to muck around and try and find some mates but i like his sort of hmm and he knows something's not quite right and he's kind of looking around and he keeps sort of leaning on his umbrella and looking through doors and i really like that kind of he's worked something out something's not quite right here and there's just these like little things he says like she'll sort of say how long have I been away for? And he just goes, you've been away as long as you think you have. There's just nice little bits that he's kind of in his own mind a little bit. I kind of like that. I know I know what you mean. It is, you do kind of miss that, the old kind of the slightly slapstick side to him. I think there's a little bit of that. Uh, just, and I like the way he's quite rude in this as well. 
I like <laughs> she shakes the tin and he just sort of grabs it and goes, it's not a very good way of attracting attention, is it? You know, and the way he outsmarts the guys in the shop, he's a lot more smooth. He's quite smooth in, in this last series, which I kind of like. The dramatic scenes are very good. That bit at the end when he's begging the master not to fight. It's yeah. just it's yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah. And it's, it's the first time, I believe, I might need to check this, but I'm pretty sure it's the first time you see a doctor cry. Because when he grabs him and he goes, what are we doing? He's got tears in his eyes. And I only noticed that the other day in HD. McCoy was told, oh, we don't need you to wear contact lenses. And then oh. when it got to the day of shooting, somebody went, oh, no, yeah, we do need you to wear contact. <laughs> so he was wearing somebody else's prescription. Oh, okay. So that could be why he's crying. No, but I think it is an actual acting thing because if you watch him, he picks up something to kill him. He realizes what's happened and he goes like, what are we doing? It's like a proper sob. Like, what am I doing? Oh, okay. And he just, and as he shouts him, he's got like, well, whether it was intentional or not, I just suddenly noticed that and thought, don't remember seeing the character cry in the old series. So if that is the first time, it's quite a powerful moment. And I feel like that could have gone on a little bit longer, that bit between the two of them. I did really like McCoy. And there's that nice moment where he kind of is left in the street on his knees and then feels very awkward about the whole thing because he's just had this dramatic showdown with his best friend, with his kind of long-term enemy. And then suddenly he's in the street and that woman comes out and he sort of goes, I'm sure things will quiet down now. Have you heard a lot of people have tried to retcon it that that woman's Jackie Tyler. No, no. There's been a big thing. I saw it online years ago, and I think there's this become this little kind of in joke now that the woman who comes out at the end and says, "Oh, bleeding cats," because of the way she's blonde, the way her hair is. A lot of people have sort of in their head, head canon, so to speak, have said that's Jackie Tyler. Remember them mentioning it at that at one of the We Are Cult events because Billy and uh, Matt were covering this, and a few people were like, "Yeah." Yeah, it's Jackie Tyler. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm just going to quote Eighth Doctor in the mo- in the TV movie, and that is, humans always seeing a pattern in things that don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> you remember when Jenna Colburn put her hand on the on the frame as she steps out of the uh, picture oh, yeah. the day of the Doctor? Everyone thought, that's Missy. Like, they, like they planned it. Like, oh, like, I remember like, that. They yeah. actually anticipated what they didn't intend on doing. <laughs> actually, I think sometimes that's part of the fun. I mean, I've always been one of these people... Like, it's almost like you start your own conspiracy. I've always liked the idea that the uh, Metacrisis Doctor becomes the Valiard. I like that idea. Yeah, that works. Yeah, because the other thing you think about is, because we find out, don't we, that Matt Smith is technically a 13th incarnation of the Doctor, or 374,000th if you take the very last series into account. But in the original concept, you know, Matt Smith says, I'm I'm the 13th, I'm, this is my last regeneration, and the Valiard is supposed to be somewhere between, was it the 12th and final incarnation, which would make the Metacrisis Doctor kind of in that vein. I always liked that idea that... that you know, in the alternative world, he just killed Rose and all the and all the family, and then just in this alternative universe became an evil doctor. I've just always thought the Valiard was a shit idea. Even at the time, I thought it was a stupid idea because what if they got to that point? Got to try and fit it in. I thought, well, they're just going to retcon it, aren't they? It's just not going to happen. And I thought it was just 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 dumb idea. But now, obviously, this new one has decided. You know what? Why don't we do that and throw the Morbius doctors in there for good measure? Uh, something that everyone slept on for about 40 years and couldn't give a flying fuck about. Uh, and then let's go and add them all in. I'm sorry, I'm going into the finale again about why I fucking hate it. Okay, so one thing I will say is, is that I, I think what I like about this season is particularly this episode, as I said before, feel like a window into another series that we never got. And I think that 
had we had a season 27, I think it would have been such such high standard. I think it would have been so good. And something that a lot of people have pointed out is that the theme music and the titles don't quite suit this season. If you look at a story like Ghostlight, which is from this season as well, the titles just seem really jarring. And I think had we had another season, I think it would have seen a real overhaul. I think um, JNT would have actually left. I think he was his plan was always to leave either way after the end of this season. And I think maybe they would have had another producer, whether that was um, Cartmel or not, I don't know. But I think it would have gone in a really interesting direction. I think it would have started picking up influences from America, shows like kind of The Next Generation or shows like The X-Files. I think it would have gone a little bit darker as well. Don't think it would ever have returned to its kind of family Saturday night mainstream success that we got years later. But I think it would have carried on in a very kind of cult television vein. You know, it might have sat in that kind of cult television BBC two six PM spot. Do you remember when like Buffy was on or Farscape, yeah. things like that. I, I could see it becoming in that sort of category. There is that. And there's also, I suppose, one blessing to the end of the season is that we were starting to see the Cartmel plan come to fruition. And I'm not a big fan of that Cartmel plan because it's not a million worlds away from the Timeless Child, really. Well, that's what they, uh, they're they saying, isn't it? The Timeless Child. Again, it does. It, it just keeps haunting us. It, every time I sat down to watch Power of the Daleks and then thought, well, that regeneration meant fuck all. <laughs> Everything just ruined by the... Sorry, I'll go back to... Survival, I will say... Um, I think it, they cho- they made the right decision in airing that last because yeah. I think if it aired on the original finale, it was going to be Ghostlight. I don't think it would even have an impact to come back to. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, I do like Ghostlight, though. Ghostlight is very... That's kind of the nearest you're going to get to a televised version of uh, the Virgin Media books. Very dark, very spooky. And thankfully, that's the closest we'll ever get. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like Ghostlight. I don't have a clue what goes on in Ghostlight, but yeah, same. I like it. Have you guys heard the Series 27 stuff The Big Finish made? Is that based along the lines of what they were going to do? Yeah, I think Andrew Cartmill wrote a couple of them, like Earth Aid, Thin Ice. Uh, okay. No, I was wondering about that. There's some, something quite interesting. Um, if you ever get a chance to to see the documentary, there's a documentary on the season 26 Blu-ray box set, which is all the writers, the writer's room. And they finally say to, um, oh, I forgot their name again, Rona... Rona Monroe. Rona Monroe. They finally say, right, be straight, were you trying to hide a lesbian undercurrent to this plot. She said, yeah, 100% I was. And I think that all the writers kind of went, yeah, well, we always saw that. All the fans saw that. We've always seen it. And bless him, little Ben Aranovich goes, were you? Is that? <laughs> he's like absolutely shocked. He's like, oh my God, that's brilliant. Well, well done. I've never noticed that. And that's something I suppose we should mention is that it's the first time, I think it's been touched on probably since in, in, um, books and big finish it it kind of points towards that one of the is it cara the tiger who was obviously originally a human then became the cheetah person has kind of a lesbian attraction to ace and ace kind of returns that attraction they were kind of playing around with ace's sexuality then because in ghostlight she wears the tuxedo and they were i guess trying to shatter gender norms and stuff I suppose for back then they had to um, they had to be quite subtle with anything like that anyway. I think it would have been more frowned upon. I mean, these days you've got you know men kissing men, you've got women kissing women, you've got lizards kissing women, you know, and making jokes about having <laughs> long tongues. Back then, I think it was a lot more conservative on television. Oh, it was. I mean, it was only 
five years later after this episode broadcast that Ellen DeGeneres came out and like a show got cancelled and people yeah. picketed Disney. Insane, isn't it? And and so therefore yeah. I think it was put in there, but very subtly. You know, you could read it two ways. You could just read it as she was attracted to the planet. But she said, um, Rona did say, you know, she said, no, I, I wrote this as a pure kind of coming of age lesbian kind of story going on in the background along with the action, which is good. I think it's good. That, and, and that once again gives you a window into what was to come years later you know there's a lot in this episode that influences the future of the show oh. which is why again it's a nice way to go out it's one of those i was fine and i find this a lot with and i won't this is the only point i'll mention you know the latest two seasons their idea of getting a message across is to have something point to camp like you know break the fourth wall this message has to stand out but the fact that for the last, how many years has it been since survival? 31, 31 years? years? Yeah, yeah, around there. 31 years? Sorry, don't mean to mention your age. Uh, so, um, but the yeah, the last 31 years, people have, subs- have subtly picked up on that and it's stuck with them more than any message that's told bluntly to their face. And I think that's a really clever way of going about it. I think Mona, was it, what's the name? Rona. Rona Monroe. Rona Monroe. I was about to say Mona Runro. <laughs> Mona the Vampire. <laughs> Mona the Vampire. Hey, Mona. I think she was very clever in what she did. And, yeah. Uh, and I, I like the fact that it sticks with people for 31 years, yeah. more than a message about climate change, which we heard about a few weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, we'd kind of gone from all these old tried and tested writers. You know, bless him, Robert Holmes was was writing episodes long after his peak. Pip and Jane Baker, bless them, shouldn't say anything bad because obviously they've... they've they're they're both it? together now. They're together now, exactly that. Bless them. You know, but they were very old when they were writing it. And then to have a young, all these younger writers come in. I mean, Ben Arnovich was really young when he wrote for that for that season. He's thinking he's only about 20, 23 or 24. Imagine that now, a 23 or 24 year old, like having that much responsibility to write episodes and stuff. It's amazing that it was, that's what I mean. It was going in the direction of a really young team who really had their finger on the pulse of youth culture. That's the one thing you can say about this episode. Whoever's writing it, is very in touch with 1989. Like Martin said, Martin looked at it and went, oh, I know that world. That's the world yeah. I was at the time. That's what pubs are like. That's what... And she knew that. You know, she knew that I'm not going to get him in a... Try and make it something that it's not. I'm I'm going to say this is what this is what the Earth's like. This is where Ace came from. This working class background. Which is another thing where I don't feel like many of the companions have been proper working class before. Ace arguably is probably the first working class companion you can sort of see what's why they went with a similar type for rose really didn't they yeah i can see that sort of developing from ace even like the youth clubs shown in this are like really authentic i remember going to them in this sort of era and it's just like what you did on a thursday night or something when you play pool and there'd be like a karate instructor there and you could take part in that just feels really authentic to me and yeah i recognize this world i recognize those streets and the cars and the fashion Mm. i highly recommend survival this week i'm going to read the novelization if you could text us the differences i'd be really interested to see what they do Um, i was going to mention when you mentioned the uh, the karate club i think the the sergeant is a really good character oh yeah we didn't even talk about him we had someone like him around where i grew up this guy who felt like he was doing his service for the neighbourhood, but actually was a little bit of a mini Hitler. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he thinks he's teaching these men to survive. Yeah. He thinks he's got them and stuff, but really he's bullying them. He, he's bullying them to fight him. 
and he knows he's harder than them and he's only picking on people who are you know it's, it's so good and then right at the end he just assumes he, he blacked out you know you see that in the new series they touch on that a lot people who couldn't cope with what was going on and they just slow us down and he's very much that because there's that one guy when they return he's so happy to be home so he's like, thanks ace thanks doctor thanks for saving my life and he's just like no i just blacked out that's all I had a weird moment <laughs> and then what's great <laughs> he's got all those shabby clothes and he walks into the gym <laughs> sorry I'm a bit late lads and then he sees the master and Midge and it's yes and they kill him which is brutal they find him under like a swinging again a scene that really gives you kind of the creeps it's him kind of lying with his eyes open in the middle of a youth club with that gym bag kind of swaying yeah. above him. Mm. Very creepy. One more character I want to mention because she's become a little bit of a, a, a cult classic. Scary Catman. Del Silva. That's it, yeah. He's got funny eyes. She went on to be in like Emmerdale or something, didn't she? She did. She was in Emmerdale and I think she was in, she might be in Grange Hill as well. But one thing I found really funny is on the DVD and it's it's on the Blu-ray as well. But if you've got the DVD, Martin, watch the documentary about this one because they interview her about being in it. And she quite blatantly doesn't remember a thing about being <laughs> in the show. But she pretends uh, to because she wants a paycheck. So she's just yeah. there going... Oh yeah, um, oh yeah, I I remember it so much. I was in some flats, and there was uh, there was the well, there was the man who played the doctor, obviously. Then there was the woman who played played the the woman, and uh, and and they, and I had to say my cat's dead, my cat's dead, and I remember thinking <laughs> at the time, my cat's not dead. And I had to cry. So I imagine if my cat was dead. And then I cried. And then she blatantly just doesn't remember it at all. But she is a, quite a funny little character. What's, the, what's she called? Pip Squeak or something? Squeak or something, yeah. Squeak, yeah. Great name. What a name. And we see another dead cat as well. Dead, yeah. dead cat count in this one because apparently Midge comes so Midge comes home this is disturbing. Midge comes home, her older brother, <laughs> with a weird man with a beard. Scary cat man, and then bites the cat <laughs> and kills it, and then just goes. That's so weird. Good though, creepy as hell. But like, yeah. but that is like something that would happen in a J- David Lynch film. I just love the fact that Ace says, "Oh, a nan lives upstairs," and then presumably just takes her upstairs. Like, what does she yeah. say to the nan? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> can you look after? And also, who was looking after her before? I guess she was by herself. It was the eighties. I was often left alone at like age five or six because she's almost like, oh, "I'll take her." to announce but it's like yeah that is a bit weird isn't it well good what a funny episode probably i like that bit where they're on the balcony like that's such a yeah proper rundown estate isn't it and it's just like nothing you've seen on the show before you'd never see that you'd never see that in the colin baker era or the peter davison era or even before that just 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 the doctor and his companions stood on this really kind of rundown working class estate and that's why those sort of scenes i think are so good there are worlds out there where the sky is burning the rivers Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) There are podcasts out there, but the stream for over two hours long. Somewhere there's someone being triggered. Somewhere there's someone kicking off about SJWs. Come on, Martin. We've got podcasts to make. (laughs) Something like that. I don't know. Okay, guys, I'm very conscious of the time because we've got a good friend knocking on our door. So let's let in Rona Monroe. Rona, I'm going to ask you the most important question I think you can ask someone these days. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I have had it. Yes, Um, I had it two weeks ago and I'd say I returned to myself day before yesterday, probably. Oh, what was it like? 
I've not had it. Everyone says the same thing. They go, oh, it's just like a flu now. And that's true. And then you have to remind yourself that having a flu is pretty damn yeah, bad, yeah. actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think it's the energy level afterwards. It's um, it's a long recovery, which is not great if you've got deadlines, but yeah. hey <laughs> So, yeah, I asked you on to talk about the target novelization of The Eaters of Light. Yeah. So I guess I'll start by asking, how did you get involved with doing this adaptation? Uh, well, because I'd written the script for the actual yeah. episode, they just offered it to me. And I, I must admit, at the time, I didn't realise you could refuse. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, I thought if I said no, someone else would do it, which yeah. I suppose is possible. Um, and I thought, well, I, I've got to do it. Thought it was quite a scramble, or it felt like quite a scramble. But um, yeah, and I was delighted to say yes. You're the first classic series writer to come back to the modern era. And what did that feel like? It's a, it's a weird um, status to have. It does make you feel very old at times. <laughs> and I sort of see the years roll past and I think I might retain that unique status. Like the only person I can see coming up behind me is Ben Aranovich. Yeah. Uh, he's showing no indications of doing it. He's put quite a lot on, hasn't he? Uh, it feels like a privilege and it feels slightly odd as if you're holding a legacy and, and I sometimes worry I don't hold it. <laughs> Um, reverentially enough yeah. um but but the the fan base does that so beautifully that i feel that they carry that responsibility i don't have to worry too much for a while you were responsible for writing the last ever episode what, yeah. did, what did that feel like of course i've said this before that they at the time we didn't know what order the episodes were going to go yeah. out. So I didn't realise that's what I was doing. I really wish I had done because the very end of that episode, of course, had to be, as we thought, the end of all Doctor Who, yeah. possibly for all time. And I didn't even write it. So Andrew Cartmel, the script editor, wrote that because I wasn't in the country at the time that that became evident. So I think Andrew did a fantastic job, but uh, it wasn't goodbye to Doctor Who forever. But it's something that I would have addressed had I known and had the opportunity. It goes out on a really sweet note though, so maybe it worked out for the best. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, you would never have, there would never have been a way of signing that off that would have done justice <laughs> to it. So but probably the light touch Andrew gave it was completely appropriate. What was the writing process like for adapting Neaters of Light? It was... It felt like an opportunity. Um, I had a chat with Jenny Colgan, who's done quite a lot of the Target and who novelizations, and she's a mate and she's a fantastic novelist. And she was really helpful because she said, you know, don't panic. What you it gives you the opportunity to do is to put in the backstory for the characters. And of course, that's in your head. So to make the characters real, you have imagined a backstory, but there's that gives them a reality mm. on the screen. But you don't want to fill in all the detail because that's just exposition that would make the sure. audience's eyes glaze over and there's no time. So it's a, an opportunity to kind of really fill that in. And I think also I realised, re, have realised in retrospect, because we were just coming out of two years of lockdowns and I live in a really um, beautiful rural area of Scotland and that had really saved my sanity, that kind of relationship between the natural world and the yeah. season. And I was so lucky to be able to spend lockdown in an environment like that. And that had been an element in the story anyway, that relationship between the Pictish characters and their yeah. environment and the cycle of the seasons. So it felt very live and something that was very much 
imaginatively in the front of my brain. So that was a really nice thing to be able to put on the page. What were the challenges when it came to adapting the work? And were you able to take ideas that you had to originally scrap to put in the book? Uh, Yes. I mean, the challenges were, I think, just it's so different telling when you when you use the when when you write in a script, the, the writing muscles you use are about telling all the story in dialogue or in 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 the case of television and film and image. And that never allows you access to a direct access to a character's thoughts. And actually having access to a character's thoughts is incredibly liberating because you don't have to think what's the incredibly witty, pithy line that demonstrates what this character's thinking. You can just say this character's thinking. Um, So in some ways it's great. In other ways, so like, for instance, I remember saying, I don't feel like we can go inside the doctor's thoughts. And she said, actually, no, I think you're right. Uh, And realised that she'd, instinctively avoided that as well stuff like that came up and you realized you had to find different ways of telling the story and some of them were really easy and really liberating and others you were like oh I can't do that so what do I do to um you know demonstrate the same things um and uh yeah it was really interesting investigating all that What's the writing environment like now on Doctor Who? Is it different to what it was back in the 80s or is it kind of similar? (laughs) Really different. I mean, it was such a, it was gorgeous. I mean, but it was such a slick machine and they, you know, they're at the height of their success and they're unbelievably well found. And at that point, the Doctor Who experience was still on the go in Cardiff and you go down there for, you know, like the script meeting or whatever, and you, you're just in this world of who, <laughs> where it is just everywhere you look, and there's fans queuing at the gate, and oh, and when it felt like when we were doing that last series of the class, uh, last of the classic series, there was like four of us in a in a in a room of Shepherd's Bush, kind of glumly going, well, they're going to cancel us any minute, aren't they? And the dust motes sort of spiraling. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which had a kind of we are the beleaguered in a bunker fighting <laughs> the band. It was a kind of really, um, again, in retrospect, a really kind of defiant energy about yeah, that, yeah. which I feel really glad to have been part of. But it was kind of nice to come back and go, whoa, this beast has an engine that will, you know, it doesn't matter whether I'm here or not. That's not, nothing about I'm keeping who alive. It's like, oh, who, who is alive? Don't need to worry about that one. <laughs> how did you approach writing for a different doctor or do you just kind of write it the same and then the actors interpret it well one of the, my theories is that what and i think that i felt that when i was writing it is that even though the personalities of the different iterations of the doctor have been in a lot of ways very very different in another way fundamentally the doctor's the doctor yeah and that is because I suppose the Doctor's backstory, the Doctor is a Time Lord. The, the Doctor is the Time Lord that's done what, what they've done. And that is their backstory. That's the spine of their character. And that's not changing. So in terms of writing them as a character, that is a constant. So it's more, what is the spin on this particular iteration? Sure. Stephen actually said my first sort of drafts of the TV scripts, I almost instinctively went into a rhythm which was much more classic who, sure. um, which is not something I would have been aware of, but it's much more. So for instance, I 
you, you probably saw my episodes, the doctor and the companion were, were and Bill were separated. Yeah. That was a really common um, plot device in classic who yeah, is yeah. that you split them up, split them up. And then you have to you, you split, you go between the two of them, but it's much less common and the the kind of rebooted who yeah and I almost instinctively went for that form of story and then uh, I probably pushed it further and and in fact was we kind of pulled that back a bit because it wasn't so much the way the stories have been told in the in the current era sure so that was interesting do you remember the exact moment you decided you wanted to become a storyteller oh gosh not the exact moment sorry but to I put was, you on the spot no that's okay I was pretty young. I was certainly attempting to write novels when I was about eight. And I had, a, I think it's that combination of if you get praised for something as a kid, yeah. you, you lean into it. And I, I, I read really early. So I was really leaning into that really early. And I also had a relative, uh, amazing guy called Angus, Angus McVicker, a real trailblazing science fiction writer as well. Um, and he was, um, uh, uh, well, he, well, he's my uncle Angus, but he was he was technically my cousin, yeah. um, but my mother's cousin's cousin. Um, but he was a, a, a big part of my family and my childhood. And so I knew it was a possible thing to do. And he encouraged me uh, enormously. He wrote an amazing science fiction series back in the 60s called The Lost Planet. Oh, um, yeah. In, Oh, you know of them? Yeah, so I've heard of them. I haven't, haven't read them, unfortunately. But... They are, they are great. Yeah. They are really great. Yeah, they're so ahead of his time, actually. And then, um, in terms of young adult books and a, and a Scottish setting as the, yeah. you know, for the human element starting in Scotland and then going out, and yeah, they were great. So that was a real inspiration to 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 not only get do storytelling, but to kind of very early on be drawn to genre storytelling. Um, for want of a better word. Sure. Do you prefer writing for TV or theatre or books, or do they each just kind of scratch a different type of itch? Uh, definitely that. Yeah. Um, the, the money's a hell of a lot better in film and telly, there's no <laughs> doubt about that. Um, I think it with theatre, you have a great deal more control over your own voice because yeah. it's a much smaller team and it's much more script-led and writer-led but then that has other pressures. And I, th- I think with doing TV and film, if you are working with the right collaborators, it's an absolute joy. If you're not, it's hellish. <laughs> um, so it's that's really, I do love doing film and telly, but the, the, my um, enjoyment of it is probably very dependent on the producers and script editors, actually, because that's, sure. as a writer, the people you're dealing with more than the director for a much longer period of time. So if you're working with people that you respect and admire and it's mutual, it, it's it's very satisfying. If you're not, it's horrific. So, yeah. <laughs> so Sam, who normally does this podcast with me, wanted me to ask a question about Ace's sexuality in survival. He wanted to know what kind of feedback you got from the LGBTQ community about that. Well, it was so interesting and it speaks to its time that I was very determined that there would be a a lesbian subtext um, or queer subtext, we'd say now. And I but I knew I had to smuggle it in. And um, which is what you did back yeah. then. In the same way, um, the late great Alan Plater said to me, you know, if you want to 
get what we would, you know, we would now call them the global majority people in a script. What you do is you put it in the in the description of the character and you give them an unambiguously ethnic name and then you say nothing. And then in, in then the only way they're going to bump that, they would have to actually come out and say something that would make them uncomfortable. So just don't go, oh, we think this character should be South Asian, just do that. And, and I did that with, with, with the survival. And but also with it with it with the lesbian subtext, I thought I'm just going to put this in, and I know what this is, and I don't know if anyone will pick up on it. Yeah. And the number of people that said to me they picked up on it, and certainly I had it was lovely. Um, you know, um, a lot later I got the chance to talk to um Sophie, and oh, I've forgotten her name, the, the wonderful woman that played the cheetah woman. That's terrible. I'm sure you can. You Lisa Bauman. I think it was yeah. anyway, but it had a, and they knew what they were doing. Yes, it, it, it's, and, and it's so great now when you look at characters like Bill and yeah. everything that's happened since, and you go, you, you don't have to smuggle it in. You just, it's there. It's fantastic. It's amazing it's a, how far we've yeah. gone in such a short yeah. period of time and for the better. Yeah. It must have been yeah. so frustrating to have to subtly write that. That's the interesting thing. As I think you're back in, in the day, you you didn't expect to win those battles, so you again it's a sort of guerrilla warfare thing. Yeah. You, 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 the environment was such was it wasn't like you were disappointed because you already knew, uh, you, and you weren't frustrated. You already knew this is the ground we're standing on, and it's only this you know it's we've only moved this far. So what can I sneak through? So there was a there's a kind of satisfaction in what you could kind of get in under the wall sure. as it were. <laughs> um but yeah it's it's great how much things have changed isn't it one of my favorite moments is on the extras for the blu-ray set where ben aronovich is absolutely staggered that that, that was a subtle just didn't pick up on it oh right yeah. oh, <laughs> that that is interesting isn't it because yeah. I, I, I think it did its job in that the people that did pick up were you know queer people picked up on it yeah which was kind of what it was there for um so it did, at least it did that much of its job yeah yeah that's a beautiful thing thank you yeah rona i'm very conscious of the time i know you're very busy today so i'm gonna thank you very much for joining me i've really enjoyed this chat it's been lovely oh me too lovely talking to you thank you so much Okay, how great was that? I'd just like to thank Rona for being so generous with her time. And thank you to BBC Books for arranging that. The Eaters of Light, The Fires of Pompeii, Stones of Blood and The Androids of Tara are all available now.